1: Really, where the sexual arousal can start. It's not just the moment you walk into the bedroom or the moment you get into bed. There's so much that we can do outside of the bedroom that can build that erotic tension to build the desire, to get the arousal going, and even just the connection and the feeling like you might want to have sex with this person.
2: Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Bussin, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn about immunity and the hygiene hypothesis. We'll find out about the cuisine of Indonesia. We'll discuss sex myths and the mistakes that people make. And lastly, we'll talk about cooking with asparagus. But first, a little bit of business. Looking for natural supplements to boost your immunity? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's rebuilding your immunity after an illness or simply maintaining a healthy immune system year round, New Roots Herbal is here for you with a wide range of proven formulations. Discover Protector, Astralagus eight thousand, Ultra Zinc, and their best-selling Vitamin C eight. If you are looking to build your immunity from within, look no further than New Roots Herbal, available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. Doctor Ludo Brunel is a naturopathic physician trained at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto. Prior to his training as a doctor, he studied human nutrition at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Bernal has spent the last 17 years helping patients optimize their health through better lifestyle and dietary supplementation. His passion remains educating the public, his patients and colleagues. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you?
0: I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me today.
2: A pleasure. So, you know, I would love to be able to tell our guests that we don't have to discuss immunity ever again because, you know, it's been a long haul with COVID, but unfortunately, we do still have to, after a year of the pandemic, discuss this. It is still important and people are still concerned about their health, yes?
0: Well, absolutely. Um, social distancing and masks are definitely a good thing right now with the current pandemic. We wanna to try to avoid the transmission of this virus, but in the long run, I fear that they, this may potentially have some detrimental effects on the immunity in our immune system. How so? Well, the immune system basically needs exposure to bacteria and bugs in our environment to develop normally. And one of the problems that we have right now in the developed world is that the rates of autoimmune disease are increasing significantly. Right now in Canada, about 2 million Canadians suffer from autoimmune disease and the rates are increasing for most of those conditions. The basic understanding in terms of why this is happening is explained in what's called a hygiene hypothesis. And basically a lack of exposure to germs reduces our immune system's ability to identify self and non-self. So not only is the immune system having problems when it comes to not attacking tissues and substances naturally found in our body, it also becomes less effective at just maintaining overall immunity.
2: So the hygiene hypothesis, was this occurring pre-COVID as well? Or are you saying this is as a result of COVID or or it's being exacerbated by COVID?
0: I fear that uh, COVID may exacerbate this trend that we've now been seeing for years and years. So if you look at studies over the last 30 years, we can see, for example, that in Canada, celiac disease, which is considered an autoimmune problem where the body inappropriately reacts to gluten. So celiac disease in Canada has increased the most of all autoimmune conditions. In the last 30 years, the rates have increased more than 30%.
2: So with celiac though, isn't it part of that that it's just being diagnosed more
0: though? There is some of that. Obviously we're getting better and better at diagnosing some conditions, but we have clearly, clear research that shows, for example, that People that tend to have more exposure to bacteria, viruses, and bugs in the environment are much less likely to end up with autoimmune dysfunction. So there's both happening, definitely.
2: Okay. So I want to be clear, just so people listening aren't, you know, taking the wrong takeaway point. Are you saying that we need to be sick in order to stay healthy? Is it as simple as that?
0: It's partly that. So basically our environment has become cleaner and cleaner. We're not exposed to bugs in the water. Our food supply is, you know, better than it has been in the past. Unfortunately, what we see is that we've paid a price for this. And the price is that, like I was explaining a moment ago, the immune system is not getting the practice that it needs. And we end up with more autoimmune dysfunction and uh, more problems with immunity because of that. There's a lot to be said about normal exposure to bacteria on the ground, for example, Right. and I think unfortunately we're more and more inside, and of course in Canada we have the winter and so exposure to microbes naturally found in the environment, and the soil, exposure is constantly decreasing and the immune system starts misfiring and attacking things that it shouldn't.
2: So, are you advocating for more gardening? Should we all be getting nice and dirty in our backyards?
0: For sure, there's different things, right? Like people that own pets, for example, are less likely to have issues. Children in larger families, so the youngest, they're less likely to have problems because uh, the idea is the older children are more likely to come home sick and then pass on those infections. But of course, there's some things we don't want to catch, right? COVID being the prime example. the Very yeah. aggressive, very nasty bug, and so that's not what we want to get exposed to. But harmless bacteria and other things in our environment, you know, there's benefits to that. Having said that, you don't need to go outside and play in the dirt. We do know from well-established research that using probiotics can give us very similar benefits in terms of training the immune system. Probiotics, the name says it, beneficial bacteria. Those bacteria make their way to your gut. And then the immune system in our gastrointestinal tract can get practice with those bacteria and we end up reducing the risk of all kinds of health problems related to the immune system.
2: Are our body's immune systems triggered to the same extent like a measured probiotic as they would if for example you got some dirt in a cut? Like is it is it the same process or, or is it a little bit different?
0: It's a little bit some of the bacteria may be similar. Of course we want to get some exposure to things that are not going to harm us. Probiotics, that's very controlled. If you get a cut, you know, you could get exposed to tetanus or some other nasty bug that could make you sick. With probiotics, of course, it's a lot more controlled and taking probiotics brings some bacteria and helps maintain a normal gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. Of course, these bugs need to get to your intestines and it's important to choose an enteric-coated probiotic for that reason. Research clearly shows that a lot of the bacteria and probiotics have a hard time surviving the acidity of the stomach. And so with an enteric-coated product, you know, that that product is only released when it reaches the small intestine. And so it's a proven method to increase the effectiveness of those products.
2: So what is enteric coating?
0: An enteric coated probiotic usually has an an outside shell or film that will only dissolve and release the uh, product once it reaches a certain pH. So, for example, there's probiotics on the market right now that have an enteric coating that will only disintegrate when the pH reaches 5 to so more alkaline pH than what's found in the stomach. Mm-hmm. The idea is that capsule stays intact in the stomach and then once the pancreatic juices are released into the small bowel, the acidity is neutralized and then the probiotics are released through this enteric coating.
2: It's kind of interesting to think of something that could resist stomach acid, right? Because, like, if you've ever had sort of like an acid reflux burp or something like that, like it's it's pretty harsh, right? So, our stomach acid can pretty much eat through anything. It's interesting to me that it doesn't eat through the enteric coating.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, specifically formulated specifically to prevent that from occurring. But you're right, most things will be destroyed by the stomach acid, especially when it comes to bacteria. It's our first line of defense to prevent bacteria from causing infections. In this case, though, we need that bacteria in our small and large intestines where it has its effect. And so the enteric coating is very useful for that specific reason.
2: Okay, so that's probiotics. What about our Mm -hmm. diet? Is there anything that we can eat that will help us with our immunity?
0: Yeah, for sure. There's several factors that are really important when it comes to protecting your immune system. What we eat, of course, is fundamental. One of the biggest problems we have in Canada is our intake of fruits and vegetables. And so the recommendations is that men and women should get between eight and 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Currently, men do very poorly, and uh, less than a third of men get five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Now, with fruits and vegetables, of course, they're very rich in different nutrients, but they also are chock full of fiber, and the fiber is what feeds probiotics. Those bacteria need food to survive, and the fiber that's found in fruits and vegetables can be broken down by those bacteria. It helps us release more nutrients from the fiber that's otherwise not digestible, but it also helps those probiotics or beneficial bacteria colonize and establish themselves in the microflora of our intestinal tract.
2: Okay. But you're not advocating for eating dirty food, right? Getting back, I'm I'm sorry, I'm fixating on the earlier part of our conversation, but you, you know, you're not recommending in order to like vary the biome to start eating moldy cheese, for example, right? Like like we still have to eat we still have to eat clean food as it were, right?
0: For sure. Yeah, food poisoning can be very serious, and so certainly we're not advocating that people start eating food that's you know, past its prime, but we do want to try to increase exposure to some healthy bacteria so that we can decrease some of the problems that we're seeing with the immune system currently.
2: Right. And if you're not getting enough fiber in your diet, there's ways to supplement.
0: Absolutely. There are different products available that contain fiber. There's some probiotics that also have fiber included with the product but typically the best way is to take a probiotic that's enterically coated and then make sure that you're taking it with food that has fiber in it. Are
2: all fibers created equal? Like they're soluble and insoluble, like from your perspective, does it matter?
0: So both are very important. They have slightly different roles in our body. The insoluble fiber, meaning that it doesn't dissolve in water, is more roughage. So it helps with motility, it helps to maintain regularity. The insoluble fiber, both will help by the way probiotics thrive, but the insoluble fiber is more, creates this gel in the intestinal tract and it's the one that helps more with things like blood sugar control, cholesterol levels and it also helps of course to maintain a healthy gastrointestinal tract that's full of healthy bacteria.
2: Okay, so we've talked about supplementing with probiotics and fiber itself. What else will help us with immunity? What other supplements might we consider?
0: Well, there's all kinds of supplements that are known to boost the immune system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vitamin D is one of the key nutrients, especially in Canada, simply because lots of Canadians simply are not getting enough. The main source of vitamin D is sun exposure. And unfortunately, in Canada in the wintertime, the sun is simply not high enough in the sky and it has to go through too much of the atmosphere and we lose the rays that allow us to synthesize vitamin D in our skin. And that's why currently about a third of Canadians have vitamin D levels that are basically considered to be deficient, so simply not enough. Uh, vitamin D is it's important to take year-round, it's a very inexpensive supplement and it offers protection both from infections but also autoimmunity because vitamin D is more of an immunomodulator, It helps to balance the immune system and so it's certainly something that uh, most Canadians should consider seniors are particularly vulnerable to vitamin D deficiency. We basically have a harder time producing vitamin D in the skin as we get older. People with darker skin, people that are inside more obviously um, need supplement with vitamin D.
2: Okay, so you, you mentioned older Canadians. Are there other supplements that the older Canadians might consider for their immunity?
0: For sure. So older populations tend to have more problems with uh, micronutrient deficiencies. So things like zinc, for example, selenium uh, tend to be lower. And, you know, those nutrients are really important for normal immune function. There's also research showing that they can help with vaccinations. They help to make sure that people produce the antibodies needed to protect them after a vaccine. And so zinc is certainly something to consider. There's also what we call adaptogens. One of the classic ones is called astragalus. Astragalus is a plant and it basically helps to balance the immune system. It's also been shown to help reduce stress and anxiety or improve our ability to cope with stress. And so right now with What's been happening and people feeling isolated it can certainly help both for mental health but also for the immune system.
2: Okay, it's interesting. You know, I would have thought that Health Canada would have been encouraging everybody to take their zinc if it helps with producing antibodies, right? Like we're, we're all in a rush now to get our, our pricks and, and, and get healthy. I think it would be helpful if there was this collateral information that was sort of uh, spurring us along uh, to maximize the benefits of the vaccines.
0: I totally agree with you. I think that um, basically the governments have taken the approach of focusing on avoidance strategies, right? So wearing masks, washing hands, social distancing. Uh, not a lot has been uh, mentioned in terms of other things that we can do to reduce negative outcomes if we do catch a virus like COVID. Right. And so some of the key things there to look at are. Maintaining a healthy weight, not smoking, being physically active, eating enough fruits and vegetables and avoiding the overconsumption of alcohol. So all those things we know really reduce the risk of ending up with a chronic disease and uh, patients with chronic disease, as we know, have been hit the hardest when it comes to COVID-19 infections. Okay.
2: So for those interested in perhaps getting supplementation, we have time for one last question and that is, do you have any recommendations for what they should go and look for?
0: For sure. You can go to your local health food store and get advice there. Uh, in my practice, I always recommend new Root Herbal products in full confidence, knowing that their products are tested in an ISO-accredited lab, which basically helps to ensure potency and effectiveness of the raw materials, but also the finished products that they're using. But certainly there's different options in health food stores, and that's typically where I'd send patients to get some of these products.
2: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day.
2: That was Dr. Ludo Brunel. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the cuisine of Indonesia on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com.
0: This is The Tonic on Zuma Radio.
2: Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. And since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife Naomi. Hey, sweetheart. How are you?
3: I'm good, thank you. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. So, like, eventually, and I don't know when this day is going to come. We're going to run out of cuisines to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because unless, you know, aliens come down with their own unique way of cooking, there's only so many countries and so many styles. But today we've got a new one for everybody, and that is Indonesian cuisine.
3: Absolutely.
2: So why are we talking about that today?
3: Well, for one thing, it's good. Indonesian yeah. food is good. It's very tasty. But also, it's lesser known than yeah. other Asian foods. So it's interesting to talk about something that people may not have tried or put their mind to.
2: Mm-hmm. So what do you want to tell us? Well, like let's start with... You know, what are the flavors and what are the ingredients?
3: Well, so you might, people might be more familiar with Thai food than Indonesian food. Indonesia is in Southeast Asia, somewhere in the same vicinity of Thailand. And the food is, is like Thai food in the sense it's sweet, salty, sour, spicy. You know, if you think of chicken satay with peanut sauce, which a lot of people would know, that's actually Indonesian. So they cook with coconut, peanuts, you know, chilies lime, sugar, lots of vegetables, but also stewed meat, grilled meat, rice, tofu. It's very, very vegetarian or vegan friendly, also gluten free, but it's that typical Asian flavors, but also with the addition of the sour and the sweet. That's what I think makes it distinctive.
2: Yeah. It's the sweet and sour element that you might not be expecting, for example, if most of the Asian food that you've eaten is Chinese or Japanese. So mm-hmm. like like it has those components. It's almost more floral, more tropical, I would say, than the other two cuisines. That's my opinion.
4: Yeah,
3: definitely. Definitely sweet and sour, lime, sugar,
2: Yeah, and it's popular in the Netherlands because Indonesia used to be a Dutch colony.
3: Yes. And I don't even think I knew that or I'd learned it in school a long time ago, but hadn't put my mind to it. It was a Dutch colony. And so if you go to Amsterdam or the Netherlands, you will find lots of very good and authentic Indonesian food. Of course, you could also go to Indonesia, assuming anybody was traveling right right now.
2: Yeah, no, but our experience when we went to Amsterdam, actually, is we, we had quite a delicious Indonesian meal there. I think it was like our first or second night. It was amazing. And it really is part of their culture in the same way that Indian food is part of the British culture.
3: Exactly. I think that's a good analogy. It was you know it was this feast that we had with many different dishes, and you know, everybody that was there was speaking Dutch. You know, it was an, a, a very traditional Indonesian restaurant located in Amsterdam. So it was very multicultural and very delicious.
2: Yeah, and this feast that we had, it was it was sort of there was just the two of us. It was served sort of family style. So a bunch of smaller plates with a lot of sort of mixing and matching. It was really sort of dramatic and, and beautiful. So, you know, if you do get a chance to eat Indonesian food, sort of having this set meal is, I think, the way to go if, if, you, if you want to try it.
3: Yes. And should anybody be going to Amsterdam? The restaurant was called Max Amsterdam. And I, and I looked it up uh, in preparation for today and it made my mouth water to look yeah. at the tasting menu because it was so good.
2: Yeah. So if you're not getting to Amsterdam and, you know, at this point... You know, we're doing takeout in Toronto. Are there places to get Indonesian food in the GCA?
3: Yes. Yeah, so and my favorite place is Little Sister. It's called Little Sister Indonesian Food Bar. And the original restaurant is at Young and Davisville, but they've opened a new location downtown on Portland. And this is very traditional. The, the owners are Dutch, and they've got this Indonesian restaurant. And it's really delicious. Lots of choices. They have tacos. I mean, I don't know if tacos are Indonesian, but they no. call them tacos. But each one, like for example, one has beef rendang, which is a classic Indonesian stewed beef and coconut milk, and it's topped with coconut cream and pickled red onions. That's one of the tacos you can get. Another one with Balinese is shredded chicken, uh, pickled cucumber. Balinese braised duck leg, short ribs, nasi goreng, which is the Indonesian fried rice, chicken satay with peanut sauce, of course, the roasted peanuts covered in a kind of a candy. All those things that I think are traditional Indonesian food, you can get here in yep. Toronto, and they do it really well.
2: And it goes nicely with like a beer. Or like a rosé wine, if you're so inclined. And uh, Little Sisters, they have composed dishes, but you could almost do it as like you're snacking, like you're sitting at a bar and eating it that way. So it can be a lighter meal, too, like perfect in summer, I would say.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the stuff is very spicy, other not spicy at all. So there's options for everyone.
2: Where else would you go if you were looking for Indonesian food in the city?
3: Well, I I happened upon a food writer called Suresh Das, who many people probably know.
4: And follow, yep,
3: yep. Yeah, and follow. He likes to talk about hidden gems that you might not know about. And he does talk about some Indonesian food, one called Lion City in Mississauga, which is actually singaporean food but they have a lot of indonesian dishes that he talks about and also another one called samara kitchen which is located by the airport which is traditional indonesian food and i think both are open for takeout so if you you if you want if you're interested in doing a little adventure now that we're stuck at home or assuming that we can go out and pick up food you can check out suresh das and the types of food or restaurants that he's recommending.
2: Okay. So that's uh, dining out in Amsterdam and Toronto with Indonesian food, but your specialty is actually cooking. So where do you want to go with that?
3: All right. Well, I heard about a a cookbook called Coconut Ensemble in December. It was a small cookbook, but it, it was on everybody's best of the year lists, And uh, I decided to get it myself. And it was really good. You know, it was fun to try. The food was all delicious. It wasn't too hard. The ingredients were not too difficult to, to find. It's, it's geared towards home cooking based on traditional Indonesian recipes. Um, the, the one thing that I did notice every time I made something was that there was a lot of chopping involved. Yes. You know, you could use a food processor can use a mortar and pestle, which is probably what they use in Indonesia, but you know, it did make some dishes, but it wasn't hard and it was very good.
2: Well, my experience with Asian cooking is there's a lot of mise en place. There's a lot of chopping pretty much with all Asian cuisines with a lot of flash cooking or long roasting. So in other words, the cooking process isn't difficult, it's, it's everything sort of leading up to it. That's more challenging.
3: Exactly. And, you know, the book is called Coconut and Sambal because coconut and sambal are both key staples in the Indonesian kitchen. No coconut, you know, but yeah. sambal is a spicy condiment, kind of like a salsa, an Indonesian salsa or chili paste. Mm-hmm. And it's different apparently in every kitchen. You know, everybody, every cook makes their sambal the way they like it. But generally it's it's made of chilies and it might have garlic, ginger, lemongrass, could have tomatoes, citrus, might have shrimp paste in it. So it's it's a sweet, spicy, salty chili paste, which goes with every meal.
2: Right, it's it's kind of like the Indian concept of a garam masala or a curry, right? Like every family has their own version of
3: it. Exactly. And so it it, it is apparently important. So I decided, of course, then if it's so important then I needed to make one. And they had some different, they had a few different recipes. I chose uh, tomato sambal, which was chopped up tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, red chilies, and some aromatics. It was a lot of chilies. I was a bit worried. I also tripled the recipe and I didn't triple the amount of chilies because that just seemed to me to be over the top spicy. And it was plenty spicy, but not you know, not too much. Nope. It's flexible. You know, I, I wasn't sure if I had the right chilies. Okay. You know, that's fine. It worked out really well. It was very good with the dish that we made, but we also used it as a, you know, as a side for chicken and whatever. But what we made with the tomato sambal was oven baked fish. Right. What, which is really what, what, good. That was a
2: snapper I think we used, right?
3: Yes. We made out a whole fish and all you do is you put some lime, salt, and oil on the fish and place it on some lemongrass sticks and then put the sambal all over inside and outside of the fish. We cooked it in the oven because it was in the winter that we made this, but you can also barbecue it in banana leaves or foil. Mm-hmm. And so if, you know, once you have the sambal, it's very easy to cook the fish. Yep. And it was tender and it was delicious and you used the extra sambal uh, as a condiment. So that was really good. And it tasted very authentic as far as I could tell. Yep. And we made coconut rice because I thought if we're coconut and sambal, we need it all in the dish. And that worked really well, too. Uh, The method for cooking the rice was different from the way I usually make it, and I decided to do that. And it worked because I've made coconut rice, and it sometimes is gummy or can burn very easily, but it, it didn't. So, yeah. you know, so far, every, you know, with the sambal, the fish, the coconut rice, everything was really good that I made.
2: Yep. I, if you don't say so yourself.
3: Well, yes, <laughs> but you can say so. No, it you was, it. it was. I'm
2: not going <laughs> to out you on the radio. No, it was, it was good. And we also made nazi goring, right? Oh,
3: yes. We made nazi goring, which is fried rice with chicken. And it was this bright yellow rice with you know, some chopped up vegetables. It had green beans and a fried egg on top, and we made a homemade peanut sauce. It wasn't spicy at all. As a matter of fact, I'd probably make it spicier, but it was it was really good. Again, easy fried rice, but it required a lot of chopping to put it together. Yep. And we made Balinese roast chicken, which was similar to the sambal. You made a sort of spice paste of garlic, shallots, ginger, chilies, you fry it, and then put it all over the chicken and he cooked the chicken over kale. We added potatoes to make it a little less healthy, but more delicious. It was so good. It wasn't a simple dish because there's like a lot of dishes blanching the kale and doing this and that, but it was very flavorful. And I really liked the method of cooking the chicken on top of the kale and potatoes because everything just had very good flavor. It was, the kale that nice and crispy. So that, that was another one that I would make again.
2: Yeah, that was more of a showstopper. Like, I mean, I would serve that one to guests because it was really impressive. That was really good. I agree.
3: Yeah. And you know, all kind of taste complex. They're interesting. They weren't that spicy. All of them had quite a lot of chili, but I didn't find anything that I made overly spicy. As a matter of fact, I might add some more spice next time.
2: Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: You're very welcome.
2: We'll hear back from you next month. Yeah, absolutely. That was Naomi Bussin. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Center is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8,300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. NutriPure is a Canadian company which formulates and manufactures natural health supplements over and above industry standards. Since 1989, it's set itself apart by providing a line of products that not only reduce symptoms, but target the causes of specific health conditions. In addition to its offering of superior products, NutriPure has always been there for its clientele with around-the-clock customer service led by health professionals. Reach out to their experts on social media and ask about their cleansing programs. FluxoBile and Hepatol for liver health, Intest 5 for colon, and ingest tea for kidney. NutraPure. Your health is their commitment.
0: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Carlisle Jansen is a sex therapist and founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality store and workshop centre. She's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. And you can find her educational videos and TED Talk at carlislejansen.com. She can be contacted directly at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hello, Jamie.
2: So, you know, we sort of coordinate in advance of the show what we're going to talk about. And if I were to sort of put in parentheses what we're chatting about today, it's questions that everybody wants to know the answers to, but is too afraid to ask.
1: Yeah, or that we're sure of what the answers are, and we never really question them.
2: Right, but maybe we're not right.
1: Oftentimes not, in my experience.
2: All right, so where would you like to start today?
1: So I thought we could start with talking a bit about orgasms, because this is a huge... So we're going to talk about all kinds of myths and mistakes, and orgasms is one of the big ones.
2: Okay, just wait, I'm I'm getting pen and paper, because if ever there's somebody who's ignorant to this, (laughs) it is this dude here. So here we go. (laughs)
1: So one of the big things is that everybody has to have an orgasm or at least one person in order for good sex to happen. And while that can be very pleasurable and can feel really great, The challenge is that when somebody has a problem with erections or orgasms don't happen, then we end up feeling like we can't enjoy the whole rest of the process because we're so focused on what we're not getting that we don't enjoy what we are feeling and the connection that we are feeling. And so many people say that they've had sex where an orgasm happened and it really was quite flat. Or even other times where we had a fabulous erotic experience and no orgasm happened, but we were completely satisfied and connected.
2: Yeah. And, and also, if you're going for the big O, then it becomes sort of like a test, right? It's like pass fail, right? Like if, right. You,
1: don't, oh, completely.
2: if you don't have the orgasm, then somehow it's a failure. And obviously that's yeah. not true, right?
1: Now, yes. And having said that, that also, you know, we do need to be focused on our partner's pleasure. And if, if a partner isn't having orgasms, then we can ask questions and talk to them. But, but not to make that the focus if they don't want that to be the focus. Right. So then the other place that people often happens all the time is that simultaneous orgasm with a penis and a vagina is supposed to be like the ultimate sexual experience, that it's not, you know, uh, a fabulous unless this is what happens. And what I call a simultaneous orgasm is coincidence. That <laughs> it, it really is so rare. And it's often, you know, in a heterosexual partnership, a female partner trying to go fast to catch up. And when we try to go fast, when we try to do something, when we push our bodies, that's when they actually don't work so well. Hmm. And we don't enjoy the ride.
2: Right. And, you know, I've read about this, you know, expecting women to have orgasms all the time is a bit of a mugs game. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And. of us orgasm easily some of us don't and then and then the other thing is that somehow only an orgasm during intercourse and i blame freud for this we're still you know even though this was a 100 years ago we still are left with this idea that if a woman doesn't orgasm during intercourse there's something wrong with her her orgasm doesn't count you know i talk to women all the time who don't orgasm and i'll ask them about oral pleasure and they say oh yeah that works or yeah oh my fingers work, but somehow those don't count. And that has to be during intercourse, even though for most people who have a vagina, the clitoris is the source of pleasure and that intercourse just does not hit that spot. So we need to have that kind of involved.
2: Okay. So let's talk a bit about techniques and and myths and misnomers there.
1: So one of the, the biggest fallacies is that sex starts in the bedroom and that that we we don't have to be nice to our partner we don't have to think about things we don't have to plan things and all of a sudden it's like oh we're in the bedroom and here we go and it's like zero to 100 in 30 seconds or less to get the engines revving and for so many of us it takes us a little longer it's fun to flirt ahead of time it's fun to spend quality time together, and that that's really where the sexual arousal can start. It's not just the moment you walk into the bedroom or the moment you get into bed. There's so much that we can do outside of the bedroom that can build that erotic tension, to build the desire, to get the arousal going, and even just the the connection and the feeling like you might want to have sex with this person. Right. The other thing is that, fortunately, many people have found the clitoris, which is great. But what often happens is that we think of the clitoris as just a little head of the clitoris, but there's much more going on underneath the surface. And so what we end up doing is we end up just like hitting it like a doorbell <laughs> or trying to push it to try and make it do what it's supposed to do. It's kind of like if, uh, you know, uh, if something doesn't work on your phone and you sort of keep pushing it until it does right. and it doesn't work that way. And often that's too intense, too much, too direct that we need to be a little bit more gentle, just like you wouldn't start with the head of the penis. You would start with lots of full body touch and you would start with other parts as well and not just focusing on the head of the penis. So that's another misnomer that a lot of women say, I don't like how my partner touches me. And that's because that's what's going on.
2: Got it. And then there's the other extreme and that is if something works, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And maybe that's not so great either
1: huh well and so there's a balance here right we all need rhythm in order to climax that there is a certain element of rhythm but that sometimes we figure out what's working and in particular when when we're talking about a sequence right like oh you like kissing and then you like touch here and then you like touch here and then i do that to you and you do that me to me and then we do this and then we i orgasm the orgasm that if you figure out something that works it's good to use that as a guidepost but that's a great way to kill the erotic tension when everything's predictable yeah And we know exactly what's going to happen. There's no risk. There's no adventure. It's not like at the beginning of the relationship where you're figuring each other out. We sort of decided, I know how you work, so I'm going to touch you like a robot, right? Like, do this thing, then do that thing. So that's one way of really killing the sexual tension is keep doing the same thing over and over again. You need to vary it up a little bit. doesn't mean you do things your partner doesn't want. Right. But you need to keep exploring.
2: Yep. All right. What about... (sighs) Hmm. How should I put this? I'm sure it's the number one question you get and that is whether size matters.
1: Yeah, so in terms of penises, you know, <laughs> I wish that for every person who said like I wish I had a bigger penis, I wish I could say do you know how many people I've talked to who said their partner's penis is too big? Wow. And that it's painful. They're either too long and they hit the wrong spot and then the partner with the penis has to kind of hold back not to go in too deep, or that it's just it's too wide and it's uncomfortable. So this is one thing we often don't think about. Now, the one thing is that if you don't know much about technique, if you're not prepared to try and figure out where the hot spots are um, on your partner, then if it's large, you're probably going to hit something. But really, if you think about the most of the erogenous zones inside a vagina and or a butt are within a couple, three inches. So you really don't need anything particularly large if you want to angle it and stimulate, say, the G-spot or prostate or different kinds of spots. And, you know, an interesting fact is when you look at studies of people who talk about when they orgasm, women orgasm much more likely when they're with a female partner than a male partner. It's very common that in a heterosexual connection, a male partner orgasms and a female partner doesn't. Hmm. So if you're saying that it's more reliable to have an orgasm between women and, you know, maybe they're using toys in order to stimulate internally. But generally, it actually has nothing to do with a penis. So you can use different toys of different sizes. You can focus on the clitoris. It really does not matter in terms of uh, what your penis does. It's how you use your whole body and tools at your disposal. Um, And generally, if intercourse does lead to orgasm, really, it, it's generally not that much to do with the penis. It's more to do with what else is going on. What's the connection? What's going on with the clitoris? How are things angled in order to bring that kind of pleasure?
2: Okay. You know, I think everybody out there at some point, I don't know whether it's because of social media or media itself or whatever, everybody's convinced that everybody else is having better sex than them, right? Like, like everybody thinks that, you know, fine, maybe they have a great sex life, but there's definitely people out there that are doing it better, right? <laughs>
1: Well, we don't like to talk about what's not working unless we're really close to someone. And especially if everybody's saying like, oh, this is great. Oh, this is great. We're like, oh, OK. All right. I'll say it was great, too. Or we just don't talk about it. And so the reality is that, you know, yes, at the beginning of the relationship, things can be great. But again, not always. Right. And what brings great sex is actually communication, learning from each other, talking to each other and Sometimes erections don't work. Sometimes orgasms don't work. Sometimes, you know, our body isn't working the way we want it to. It hurts to go in this position that usually works well yep. or what used to work doesn't. And so there's there's nothing wrong with learning about what you like and what your partner likes and what works between each other. There's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of people think it's just supposed to be natural. And if we love each other, it's just supposed to happen. And this is definitely not true. For very few people, does it just work naturally? Most of us have to communicate, try different things, and try and figure it out. And if you can communicate with your partner that's great and so people who are having amazing sex are probably good communicators and people who are willing to take risks but it doesn't just happen naturally and you'd be surprised that most people are having very average sex and some people are really happy with that but don't always believe that you know if you do this one thing it's going to produce great sex or that everybody's doing this thing and it's amazing because it's going to work for some but not for everybody and sometimes we're not always prepared to tell the truth.
2: Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: It's always a pleasure.
2: What would you like to discuss next month?
1: So next month, we are going to talk about depression and sex and how that all interacts with each other.
2: Fantastic. That was Carlisle Jansen. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show and podcast, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's a health and wellness publication distributed with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. And it can be found free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA. You can learn more about Tonic Magazine at tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, check out the new look of Tonic Magazine.
0: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: My next guest, Shauna Lindzen, is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and a lot of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalindzen.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
5: I'm great, Jamie.
2: How are you? I'm doing well. We're we're talking about asparagus today, and asparagus was like one of those vegetables I was not vegetable friendly back in the day. But this is an odd one because I just started liking it maybe a year or so ago. Before really? before then, I couldn't eat it.
5: No way. Why? Why not?
2: I don't know. Just like I didn't like the texture because it's woody and it just, you know, it makes your pee smell funny. <laughs> and, you know, it just, it, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. And then I made it a certain way, which we'll talk about later, and it opened up a whole new world for me. And, and now I like it. And I'm
5: happy to hear that because asparagus to me is just like happiness, right? The spring weather is here. Asparagus comes out. It's almost like the tree starting to develop again.
2: Yeah. You know, there's certain seasons that people sort of like enjoy the food. Like some people love the comfort food of winter or some people, you know, go crazy for the fruit harvest late in summer. Some are excited by spring. Every time I think of spring, yeah, I think of asparagus and rhubarb. But I also think of like, what is it? the, The fern fronds. Oh, Fiddleheads. Fiddleheads and I hate them. And and it just like I'm not a spring guy. I'm just not.
4: Food, yeah, really? food, <laughs>
2: yeah, food wise, eh. All right, yeah, rhubarb. Naomi gets excited about rhubarb, it's like, oh okay, rhubarb. And we even grow it and, and I kind of like it. I don't if if you ask me, like spring is like like a very distant number four in terms of food. Really? Yeah.
5: And with rhubarb you have to hit it with a bunch of sugar too yeah, to make course. it taste good. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, I get it. I understand it. I understand why people are excited about spring food and lamb and eggs and all the rest of it. Eh,
5: <laughs> I'm a bit on the opposite end of the spectrum there. I I love the thought of starting to grow your herbs and you yeah. know the, the greens coming out. It, it kind of makes me happy.
2: Okay. So for those who need to be convinced to eat their asparagus, <laughs> why should we cook with it?
5: Okay, so if you look in the grocery store, when spring comes about, mm-hmm. it's actually the asparagus in Ontario, where we live, they're, I think they don't come out until May or June. Yeah. But in April, you see the Mexican asparagus. Mexican
2: and, asparagus, yep.
5: Exactly. And they come either in like a thick stock or a thin stock, and they say that the thinner ones taste better than the thicker ones, because the thicker ones, texture-wise, are a little bit more grown up. So like they're, they're, they're woodier. Woody.
2: I'm in that camp. If I'm going to eat it, I want the thin ones.
5: The thin ones. Yeah. And I think if you make them properly, like if you just cook them enough that they're not overdone yeah. and limp, I think that I, I enjoy them more just slightly steamed or slightly roasted. Okay. just that so they still have that crunch factor. Mm-hmm. Instead of kind of the, the limp
2: factor. Okay. So let's talk about the early season asparagus just a little, uh, one more second more. And that is, if you're going to get the thick ones, you just, you either have to shave them, which is kind of a at pain. At the bottom, yeah. yeah. You kind of use a, like a peeler and you, and you peel away the outside or you cut off the bottom third at least. That would be my advice.
5: Exactly. And Another really good idea is to shave them with a carrot peeler yeah. raw. So then you get kind of the crispiness and you can eat them raw yep. or do both, like cook them up and then shave this asparagus raw on top, almost like it will look like frisée, yep. like, you know, mm-hmm. like very light, fluffy lettuce. And that's a really fun way to enjoy asparagus and enjoy the flavor.
2: Okay. So, so let's just cut to the chase. You give me your favorite asparagus recipe and then I'll give you mine. I've got Absolutely. Two. And Go it's
5: funny. I, I'm actually I'm doing a cooking demo tonight on Zoom and I'm making this recipe. So okay. with asparagus, right when I bring them home from the grocery store, mm-hmm. I put them standing up in a glass of water. Yep. And they stay in your fridge for a few days. So do that right when you get home from the grocery store. Just Mm -hmm. stand them up in a glass of water that is big enough for them and pour a little bit of water. Done. Mm -hmm. Then I take the asparagus and I break off the ends or I literally just take a knife Mm -hmm. and cut, as you say, about a third of the way up. And then I lay them on a baking sheet that I've covered with parchment paper. Mm -hmm. I preheat my oven to about 425. Mm drizzle a little bit of olive oil, sprinkle a little salt and pepper, throw them in the oven for 10 minutes. Then once 10 minutes is up, I take them out of the oven and I sprinkle a little bit of Parmesan or Parmesan or Reggiano on top, put them back in for two minutes Mm -hmm. just so it just melts, and then take them out and I put a little bit of lemon zest, lemon juice, salt and pepper, and they are Always
2: delicious. Okay, so your favorite is very close to my favorite. Ooh. So okay. what? So what I do is I marinate them in olive oil, lemon juice, salt, and pepper, and I grill them until they turn bright. That's yes. it. Once they turn bright, they're done. You don't want to like you. You don't need three to cook. minutes. Probably yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and you just you turn them, getting a little bit of char on them. And I toss them with spring onions, so I'm reinforcing the spring like scallions. And I find that's enough. With that, they make a nice side dish with steak. They're they're good with meat. They, they and need aren't something... they easy?
5: Like yeah. it's kind of like they just go with everything. Yeah. The, I agree. The yeah. only
2: the only thing if you're grilling them, obviously you have to turn them perpendicular to your grill. I so, was gonna say so that they don't fall through. Yeah, but, they're
5: gonna fall through. Yeah.
2: So as long as you do that, or if you want to use a grill pan, so that would be my number one recipe. What's your second?
5: the second i love to make and there are a lot of recipes out there to look up with this type of thing if you take puffed pastry mm-hmm. you bake it off in the oven until it puffs up maybe you know 15-20 minutes on a high temperature like 400 yep. then you put the asparagus down on like you lay them down and you can make it with some sort of cheese like goat cheese or caramelized onion and i think an. a Asparagus, puffed pastry, little tart or tartlet is Mm. delicious.
2: That's interesting.
5: Delicious. Yeah. Another thing I like to do is to put them in frittatas, Mm -hmm. but you have to be careful. If you overcook them, they do get that kind of, you know, soggy, aspect to them so you you literally just pan fry them for a minute or two yeah. and then you put the eggs in the cheese in the milk and you whisk that all together and it's quite delicious the combination of eggs and asparagus is quite delicious
2: yeah, i say I'd be, I, uh, to my mind, that would be hard to execute. And once you've had mushy asparagus, uh, yeah. that's kind of the end of asparagus. for Do
5: You me. know what, Jamie? Then there's another recipe. I think this stems from South African cooking mm-hmm. where you either steam or boil your asparagus or you can roast them. And then you put chopped hard boiled egg on top. Hmm. Does that appeal to you? No. Really?
2: No. I've got another one that kind of works. I mean, that may sound good to the listeners. Cool, if you like. Yeah. I make cacio a pepe. Yeah. Pasta. And I chop up the asparagus... Into small pieces. So yes. like very small pieces. So you cut away the, the bottom third, and then maybe each spear gets cut into maybe four or five little bite-sized pieces.
5: On the diagonal properly. Correct, yes. Okay.
2: And then I throw them into the water with fresh peas, so the the, the pasta's cooking. So you time it, so you're going to time it, you take off one minute to toss it in the cacio a pepe, you take off another minute, and you put your peas and your asparagus in at that point. So they just get flash cooked for one minute. Yeah. And then when you're tossing the noodles in with the cheese, you also toss the asparagus and the peas in.
5: Okay, I'm coming over for dinner. That sounds delicious.
2: It is. It rocks. That,
5: and then the other thing that you probably put in there, a bit of hot chili flakes, pepper flakes probably.
2: You know, I'm a purist when it comes to cacio a e pepe. and you what want I, your pepper. I yeah. want my black pepper. But what I do is I make an adjustment to the pepper grinder so that it is a coarse grind. Boom. Boom. And that actually, the black pepper does wonders with the asparagus.
5: And that, to be honest, is one of the simplest recipes and it is always delicious. And you probably rotate that weekly.
2: Yep. One of our staples. Yep.
5: Yeah. And it's easy and it's inexpensive and there are only two or three things you have to pick up at the store. Done.
2: Yeah. I would say, and if you want to go fancy with it, and I tend to go fancy with it, I will go I know this sounds really foodie and snobby, but I will go and I get the special Tuscan Pecorino. So I'm not actually using the classic Roman yes. uh, Pecorino. This is a smoother Pecorino and actually I find it far superior and it actually melts better So that yes. when, because that's typically a problem when you're making the Cacio e Pepe. The cheese doesn't melt evenly and it gets clumpy. So this question, this, do this you, does not get clumpy.
5: And do you finely grate it? fine, fine, fine. Yeah. I
2: use a microplane and I will grate it on the microplane and it melts perfectly. I've never made cacio e pepe where it hasn't worked with this particular cheese, but it costs a a fortune, but it's worth
4: it.
5: Yeah. The pecorino you can also get with like infused with truffles or that type of thing. And I also like when you initially grate it really fine. Mm -hmm. And then when you take a peeler and you peel a few larger kind of slices and you put that on top and it's Okay. It gives it a nice texture.
2: All right. We have time for one last asparagus application. Go.
5: I have no idea if you are going to like this, but what about a pureed asparagus soup?
2: Yeah. I was wondering if you were going to get to soup. Yeah. I would say not pure asparagus. I'd want some other thing in there, like maybe potato. Or to... leek. Or yeah.
4: leek. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Beautiful. And then you can just top it with some pistachios or hazelnuts or very delicious. And you actually don't even have to put cream in there if you use an immersion blender.
2: Correct. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next month?
5: Let's talk about spring eating and what's in season.
2: Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Ludo Brunel, N.D., Naomi Bussin, Carlisle Jansen, and Shauna Linzen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. The March-April issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to each and every home subscriber in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll be sure to discuss all kinds of interesting health and wellness topics. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.